0: And to me, it's a a standard rule in real estate investing for folks that don't know that you should get 1% of the purchase price for rent. But if you're going to house hack and only use it as a house hack, I'd say, you know, you can sort of skip that rule.
1: Welcome to the
2: FI show. Where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your
1: host, Cody and Justin.
2: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Fi Show. Before we jump in, let's check in with the co-host, Cody. What's going on, man?
1: Hey, what's going on, Justin? Had a pretty eventful weekend, so went out with some friends on Friday night, and actually drove down to New Jersey. It's about a three and a half hour drive on Saturday. Hung out with a bunch of family because my cousin Connor was having his first communion that early Sunday morning. So it was a big fiesta. We got to see family we hadn't seen in a long time because of COVID. A lot of people are getting vaccinated now, including you and I both. So it was good to see everyone. Good to see friends. Good to see family. How about you, man?
2: Yeah, like you said, with the vaccination, finished up my second dose last week. Been doing some house sitting to help out. A family friend of Leslie's, shout out to Duke, the oldest good boy golden retriever in Austin, Texas. He's got the full white face, but he's trying to keep it going. And then this last weekend, we had an awesome trip where found this group of paddleboarders uh, across Texas, and they were meeting up in a state park called Garner State Park, about three hours outside of Austin. So maybe that's just another tip for listeners. You know, if you're in a new city and you're trying to figure out friends, there's like a Facebook group for everything. So yeah, we went paddleboarding down the river there, and that was a really good time. Got to camp outside a couple nights. So uh, definitely enjoying the Texas weather. But that wraps up our weekly
1: update. Let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month.
2: Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just, they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401Ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you wanna use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC.
1: So in this week's episode, we wanted to get really tactical, and we wanted to get really tactical about house hacking in particular, and we thought there was no better person to bring on than Andrew Kerr from the House Hacking Podcast. So Andrew actually bought his first property back when he was 20 years old, didn't end up going to college, got into the mortgage loan industry. Since then, he's acquired so many different types of properties. Man, this guy has literally done everything. He's had 20 plus evictions. So much knowledge in the space, and we get really granular, asking him about, you know, how do you start house hacking? How do you find people to live with you if you're in a house hack where people are renting by the room? And how do you avoid the big mistakes from the beginning?
2: Yeah, I mean, house hacking is obviously super powerful. We've talked about it in other episodes, like Craig Kirlop, you know, who worked at Bigger Pockets, and you know, the, the things that you get with house hacking that you just can't get with a normal rental property is you don't really need it to cash flow necessarily to help yourself out. Like, as long as they are helping out, it's helping out your mortgage, right? So, it is reducing your rent. So, you don't necessarily have to just completely stress about, oh, it's got to hit the 1% rule or it's got to hit that. It doesn't have to be looked at as only like an investment property. It can also be just looked at as, oh, well, here's a way to reduce my rent. Obviously, there's, you know, a lot of people have concerns about roommates and that sort of thing. But, you know, we talk about, the different setups that you can have. Not all homes require you to really share space in order for it to be a house hack. Like there's a lot of houses that have an add-on room or an attic or like a garage space that's been converted to an apartment. So there's definitely something for everyone in the house hacking space. So it's for sure worth looking into. But as Cody mentioned, we go over a lot of detail here. So whether you just want to share this with a friend or go back and kind of refresh your memory when you're looking through the notes later on after listening, you can find all the show notes at thefishowcom slash Andrew. That's thefishowcom slash Andrew.
0: Yeah, it was really just something that developed over the years. So, you know, I'm a a little bit older. I'm probably about as old as you can get and still be a millennial, but I actually bought my first house at 20 years old, and this was uh, 2002. So, really before the real estate trend started picking up, but I just had this idea of getting ready to go rent an apartment with a friend. And I realized what we could pay for rent because I was in the loan and mortgage industry, I could buy a house and my payment would be equivalent or less. And I was like, why, well, if my buddy, he can just rent a room from me. So why do not I do that? And now we've got a nicer place than we could actually rent. And then, you know, you get all the benefits of being a homeowner. And that was really sort of the, the start of it. So I was actually just talking
2: to a buddy recently kind of about this, where, you know, you'll look at someone who has that entrepreneurial spirit, or they'll start to do things like this. And it makes sense from the outside looking in, but the part that maybe sometimes it's hard to teach or, just a, an attribute that not everyone has is this appetite for risk, like this thought of like, well, yeah, I'll just go buy this. This will work. This will be fine and just go with it. And that's the thing that maybe is holding some people back, even if they see it and understand it. So I guess what made you feel so confident that like you weren't going to buy this house and there be and something terribly go wrong with it or whatever, especially at such a young age? What got you over the hump?
0: Yeah, so maybe it was just stupidity, right? You know, early on, it's I didn't know better that things can go wrong, and you know, when you're young, you just think you're invincible. So I'd say a little bit of it was that, and then the rest was just my attitude of, I'm 20, I've got 60, 80 years of life left, so if I make a mistake, worst case, I can file bankruptcy, and you know, I wasn't worth anything at the time. You know, some of the folks that I've I've actually talked with that are the most risk adverse. They really don't have very much to lose. And I was like, worst case scenario, you know, you might only have a net worth of a thousand dollars. So yes, you mess up on this deal. Worst case, what you're back at zero or you're negative, but then you file bankruptcy and then you're back at zero. So like take that a little bit of that risk. So I think a combination of it was like just strategically thinking through, okay, what's the worst, what's the absolute worst part of the downside okay, that's actually really not that bad. And then the other part of it at that age was 20, just being a little dumb and thinking you're invincible and nothing will fail. So it was that sort of weird pair of things.
1: Did you have a mentor or anyone that was kind of guiding you at this point? Because even if you are fearless, you don't have a lot to lose. Just understanding like all the nuances of buying real estate, making sure the numbers work. I feel like that's not just a skill that anyone has. Did you take courses on this? Did you go to school for this? Or was someone telling you this? I'd love to hear like, where that knowledge was coming from.
0: Yeah. So early on, you know, when I bought that first property, part of it was just I started in the mortgage industry. I didn't go to college. I wanted to do culinary school. My parents w- said, no, we're not going to pay for that. You can never have a career. My dad was like the engineer at IBM, was their first whole entire career. You know, that was their traditional thing. It's like you go to college, get good grades, you get the good company. And what I wanted to do was so different that I always just thought about things a little differently. I was big into sort of personal development books. You know, Back then it was like Zig Ziglar, those types of folks. And I just started realizing that as I got in the mortgage industry by accident, I just started looking at people's credit reports. I was looking at loan programs and I knew nothing about what would make a good deal, but just a little common sense math is if I can rent a place for this and I can buy a place for this, and buying is less than what I'd pay for rent. Like, this is beneficial for for me as an individual. It should work out, you know, long long term. So early on, I, I didn't really have in any of that. It was just picking up as I went through life some different things. But from that side, it was nothing on the real estate side. Later on, I came across a really great mentor uh, there in you know 2008, 2009, 2010 that really helped accelerate my my real estate investing.
2: And that's kind of what I wanted to start digging into was that acceleration because I imagine based on where you are now that that first deal went over fairly well. It was somewhat successful. So could you just tell us what that was like when it did work out the first time? Like how did that kind of ignite you to want to do more? Did you kind of get like an addictive feeling where it's like, oh my goodness, this worked. I can't wait to buy as many as I can. Just how did you progress from that first one?
0: Yeah, good question. So early on, it was actually not goal to pursue real estate. It was a goal just to be rich, right? It was like, I want a lot of nice things. I want to fly private. I want to have a big mansion. You know, that was like at 20 years old, it was very much consumerism, very materialistic outlook on life. So it was pushed hard in my career. Real estate was just this little after thing of like, oh, I need a place to live. So I do that and then, okay, have a good deal, come across another one or what I thought was a good deal. But my main objective there in my early 20s was growing my career in the mortgage industry and ended up becoming a partner in a a mortgage brokerage shop. And it wasn't until later that I ended up in the nonprofit sector that I wasn't making any money. And I realized like, hey, this real estate thing is actually a really good thing for building wealth. And that's what actually started to accelerate the desire in me and the drive to want to really go headfirst into real estate investing.
1: So I guess the question I have is while you're doing all this, Andrew, obviously, there has to be some degree of cash flow management from your side, like you have to be able to say your furnace goes out or say the roof needs to be replaced, or, you know, some catastrophic thing. What were you doing to kind of manage your cash flow on a personal side when you started accumulating properties or after you got that first property?
0: Yeah, I mean, some of it was just this big shift I had in life from being like an evil, greedy mortgage banker to ending up in the nonprofit sector. You know, my starting stipend was like $800 a month. So you really had to figure out how to manage money. And then the work that I was doing was disaster response work. So most of the time I was traveling or gone for months at a time living in a disaster zone where we were living in very basic housing and our meals were covered for. Us, so I really had no expenses other than a cell phone bill. You know, I had a car that was paid off. Insurance was super cheap back then. So, you know, my total expenses might have only been 100 or $200 a month. So that just helped build a little bit of this Hey, there's extra cash flow from the personal side. And then on the real estate investing side, as I started growing, I that's where I came across the mentor. I just started sitting down and talking with different folks that I knew about, you know, how could I build wealth quicker because I'm investing everything I have in real estate? How do I come up with more money? And that's where I ended up stumbling across this guy I had known for quite a while that I had no idea he was a real estate investor. And someone's like, you, you gotta go have lunch, lunch with them, go talk with them. And I was like, "Why? Why this uh, bill? This guy that we knew—he was a scientist, worked at the EPA his whole career. Retired. He was in his 80s." And my friend was like, "Well, you know, he owns like 100 plus properties." And then he was the one. Him and his wife took me up to the country club for lunch, and they sat down and said, "Look, you know, here's everything we did right. We did wrong. You know, make sure you have reserves. You need capital on hand for when things happen. You need capital for." getting financing, they sort of explained all of that side of it to me. And that's what really helped that side of it. And then also being in the mortgage industry, I knew when I did loans for other folks that there were reserve requirements. So that sort of cheap nonprofit salary helped build it for me on the personal side. And then the mortgage industry experience plus the the mentors, what helped really sort of understand it on the real estate investing side.
2: And not to give listeners too much whiplash, but I do kind of want to step back a little bit because we started this episode with you talking about, I was just doing this to try to get rich. Like that was my focus was just to get rich as much money as I could. But then somehow you end up at a nonprofit with an $800 stipend, like what led you down that path? And because that is a major mental shift that I think a lot of people would love to know. How do I go from being kind of greedy to being working at a nonprofit for, you know, a very reasonable salary?
0: (laughs) Yeah. It was a weird lifetime. I mean, you know, I was dating this woman. We'd been dating several years. She had just finished college. You know, I had skipped college was working and then it was sort of at a place like we both knew we weren't ready to get married, but we thought we'd still be together just because we had been together for several years. And there was that bad breakup, that heartache made me look for something different. The business partner and I just had very different work ethics We joined up together because we were both top salespeople, but we both weren't great leaders and managers and had different styles. So then we ended up having a split in the business. And then also this thing came around there in 2007, 2008, the sort of financial collapse and just, I was making good money, but I really just wasn't happy with life. And I had a friend that said, you know, Andrew, instead of going and getting drunk at the beach for 4th of July... Why don't you come and volunteer with me? There's this organization that does disaster response cleanup work. And if you pay to get yourself there, the housing feeds you. You just got to work eight, nine, 10 hours a day helping doing cleanup. And I was like, you know, it's so different than anything else I had done before. I'm in let's go try it. And that week turned into this sort of like two weeks to me just staying on as a volunteer and then ended up getting hired on uh, to work with them uh, full-time doing business development and and fundraising. And that was really sort of what that shift was, you know, bad breakup, romantic breakup, bad business partner breakup, financial crisis, just unhappy with life and looking for something different. And then, you know, is that nonprofit work that like it sounds cheesy, but like you actually felt like you had a purpose when you got up in the morning and you felt excited about what you were doing. And, you know, luckily I had no debt and I was in my sort of mid to late twenties and you know, you didn't need a lot of money to get by. A couple beers at the end of the day was, was cheap and easy for you.
1: But at that same time, Andrew, you did have these rental properties that you had. So that was supplementing your income, I'm imagining, right?
0: Well, at that point, after the crisis, I I had zero. I I had sold everything. I walked away with the split with the business partner. I essentially left the business with nothing. It was, we could keep fighting and drain all the assets that we have, or I just said, I'm so done, I'll walk away. So all the money and equity we built up in the business too, I I walked away with zero. So I essentially started 2008 with, I had some money in an IRA, but I had no debt, but I I wasn't really worth much at that point.
1: Wow. Okay. So this is even better. So I really want to get tactical on this episode. That's kind of why we brought you on. You've done a bunch of episodes in your own podcast, the house hacking podcast, helping people with typically their first investment, which is a house hack. It's one of the easiest ways to get started in real estate. And so let's talk about a house hack. And it sounds like you've had some triumphs. You've had some failures. If I'm someone who, and this is a very open-ended question, if I'm someone who wants to get involved, what are some red flags. What are some things I should look for when I am looking at that first house hack?
0: Yeah. So house hacking is an interesting thing. And I almost say if you never want to get into real estate investing, do a house hack just to help accelerate your path to FI. But from the real estate side, it's the easiest way to get started. And the big piece of that is because you're qualifying for a home that you're going to live in. And that financing for a home that you're going to live in is very different you know you can use an fha loan and only have to put three and a half percent down versus if you're buying an investment property now all of a sudden you're having to put 20 percent down and that's what really helps get folks started but what i'll do is when i look for a property that i want to house hack or someone says andrew you know how, how can i go look for something i look for a property that's a, a small multifamily or has a walkout basement, a garage apartment, a pool house guest house, some additional space that can be rented out. Whether you want to rent it out to buy the room, rent it out to college kids, rent it out to travel nurses, put it on Airbnb, whatever you want to do. But trying to find a property that has some extra space that you can rent out to offset part of those housing costs. And that's really the basic thing that you'll start to look at. And then you know, some folks will say, "Look, you got to look at the one percent rule," and to me, it's a, a standard rule in real estate investing. For folks that don't know that, you should get one percent of the purchase price for rent. But if you're going to house hack and only use it as a house hack, I'd say you know you can sort of skip that rule if it's not going to be a long-term rental, and, and look at it from the sense of you know if you're spending fifteen hundred dollars a month at rent, and you can go buy a house for two grand, but you're going to have a rental unit in there for fifteen hundred bucks you know, your all-in cost is 500. Maybe it won't make sense as a long-term investment property, but you just cut your housing costs in more than half. And that's a win for a lot of folks. And the thing you
2: mentioned there about like, it's different because you'll be living there, it's different financing. Are there any gotchas there? Like, let's say you move in, you're trying to do the house hack. Three months later, you realize this is not for you and you go to move out or anything, any other kind of gotchas people should look out for?
0: Yeah, with a lot of the loans when you're buying it for a primary residence, you're sort of required to live in it for a year and you know a lot of that is based on the intention. So if you actually do move in and something absolutely changes and you decide to get out and sell, you'll be fine. You know, if you decide to move out and rent it, you might raise some eyebrows, but you know, if you can present a good case, I think you would be fine. You know, don't take that as legal advice, but generally the hurdle is you have to live in it for 12 months to satisfy the the loan requirement.
1: And when you are buying something like a house hack versus an investment property, could you talk about some of the advantages like maybe, you know, percent down, the down payment or what you're getting for interest rates or any other advantages that you can think of why someone should pursue house hacking as a strategy to get to five faster?
0: yeah, I mean, you already just you just named them right there for me, <laughs> Cody. But yeah, so the down payment usually you can get by with three and a half five percent down payment. You know, so on a two hundred thousand dollars house, that's like seven grand, where if you were to buy it as a pure investment property, you're doing twenty, twenty five percent down. so forty, fifty thousand dollars. The rates are generally better between a quarter to three quarters of a percent better. So and then the other cool thing is you can use that as qualifying income. So if you're buying a duplex and the other side's rented for $1,000 a month, most lenders will let you use 70% of that as qualifying income.
2: Now, what if somebody's listening to the show and maybe they're a little deeper down their path of five, but they didn't use real estate to get there? they don't have a steady income like what is a way that they can still get into these things are you you came from this industry with mortgages and loans so how can they qualify to get a loan like this if they can't show that they have a steady source of income
0: yeah it's definitely tougher now if you're going after the traditional financing so what i would say is if you got that sort of up and down income if you got a long enough track record you should be okay with traditional financing, but then I'd say look at that non-traditional financing. So look at hard money, so you can get in and get established with the property and refinance out. Look at private money. Find someone that has a lot of money that could lend it to you. Uh, someone that has a self-directed IRA and would lend on that property. You know, there's a lot of folks that are just entering retirement or retired that have two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in that. IRA, and they're very unsure of keeping it in the stock market. and They would love to get a steady 5% return per year. So that's what I'd sort of say is go towards that non-traditional financing if you have that unsteady income.
1: All right. LLC or no LLC? I see this in so many different groups. <laughs>
0: no LLC, right? I mean, one, if you're going to do a house hack, as soon as you put a property in an LLC, you're no longer qualifying for that traditional Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac financing. And then, you know, one of the other biggest things people say, like, oh, I'm not going to be a real business. I'm not going to be a real estate investor unless I have an LLC. For most folks, that asset protection isn't needed because they have zero assets to start with. So, and then there's also the hurdle of setting it up and maintaining it, you know, like North Carolina, where I do some investing, it only costs me about 250 bucks a year to keep my LLC up with the state. But there's other places in California where you'll spend a thousand dollars or more to keep that LLC up. So if you've got a property that's only cash flow in two grand or three grand a year, and you've got one of those higher cost states, you know, you could be given out a quarter to a third or more of your cash flow on a property to an LLC to protect assets that could be protected via insurance. And then the other big thing I always notice, folks, they actually don't set the LLC up right. You know, they'll just use like a legal Zoom or something like that, where a good lawyer can shoot holes in it. And then they also... Don't separate everything. So, if you're going to actually set up an LLC and have that protection, and you want to have everything fully separate, and what folks will do is they'll buy a property, put it in the LLC, and then they'll use some of their own money or they'll have a lease written in their name and not the LLC's name. And any good lawyer will say, Oh, you know what? That's actually not a true separate entity. It's you. And now all of a sudden, if that asset protection just disappeared. So, you know, for most folks, they don't set it up right, they don't maintain it properly, and then the costs eat into a lot of their margin. There's definitely a benefit to them, but for most folks, no, no LLC.
2: Now what about after you've you've purchased the place, you found a renter, you're doing a house hack, and you're starting to get into things like insurance, whether it be renter's insurance, the home insurance, like if something happens because of the renter, or if something happens like to the renter's things, you know, how does that work when you've got multiple people living in this kind of one dwelling?
0: So, you'd really want to talk with a good insurance agent, but what I'll always do is I try to be as upfront as possible with my insurance agent on what I'm actually doing. That way, they can get me the proper insurance. So, a lot of folks will say, Oh, you know, I'm actually going to do Airbnb or VRBO, do short term rental, and I'm not going to tell my insurance agent. And I've got insurance through Airbnb. Your normal insurance policy will be invalidated because if they find out you're doing Airbnb, most insurance policies will have you put on a short-term rental rider might only cost you, you know, a couple hundred bucks a year. So I'd look at that. I also require all my tenants to have renter's insurance. And I tell them my insurance doesn't cover your personal belongings. If something happens to your personal belongings, it's not covered. That's why you need that rental insurance. And that's why it's required by your lease. It also helps add a, a layer of liability protection And then a good insurance agent will actually tell you, like, let's build in some rent loss coverage. That way, if there's an issue in the property, is that a service, you can have that income coming in as well. And then they can add in some additional liability coverage for you too.
1: And I know we are definitely not giving any financial, tax, legal, health advice on this podcast. But so a question I have is this is something we hear so much when people are getting involved or people who are already involved with real estate are the tax benefits. Now, how do those work with house hacking? Like, can you depreciate the full value of the property since you're living in half of it? What happens to the rental income? Is it taxed as, you know, regular earned income? I'd love if you could just, you know, share as much insight as you can on the tax situation.
0: Yeah, it's going to vary a little bit depending on the situation. You know, when you get into a more traditional style investment property, like a small multifamily, a two, three or four unit It gets a little clearer, but what I've seen folks do is say, okay, I'm going to rent by the room and they're just paying me cash or shoot me money via Venmo. They're not going to report that income. So if you're not reporting that income, then you can't claim any deductions for that. So it's hard to claim a home office for your real estate business if you're not reporting that income. It's hard to depreciate that portion of the house as an investment property if you're not declaring that rental income and that's where it gets a little bit you know i always tell folks like okay yeah if you don't report the income yes you might save a little bit of money on taxes but you're building the foundation of a future business on shaky ground like do do it the right way paying taxes is a good problem to have right if you're paying a lot of taxes it means you're making good money so You know, in a traditional like single family, if you're renting by the room, what a CPA might do is say, Great, you're living in the master bedroom, but the two other rooms are rental properties. So we'll depreciate that portion of the house versus on like a duplex, they'd only depreciate half of it and then they wouldn't depreciate the half that uh, you're living in. So you can still get those tax benefits, but you actually got to report the income and then a good accountant will help you um, figure out the portion of the house to uh, allocate and depreciate.
2: Now I know that this is kind of a thing that like any landlord will have to do when they're looking to put tenants into a property, you know, find the tenants, but I could imagine that having a house hack situation, especially if it is one of those, where maybe they're in the top floor and you're in the basement or maybe they're just in a shared room, something that where there's not a, a completely separate entrance and, a, you know, something's a little more personal that you really want to do your due diligence on finding that tenant. So specifically for a house hack where that might be the situation, you're crossing paths and stuff a lot. Do you have any advice for the listeners on how to do that? Like how to vet the tenant, how to make sure you're going to be compatible?
0: Yeah. I'd, I'd almost even say like, take a step back further. So Fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of folks will learn about house hacking because it's been in the news so much over the past two years. But most of the instances highlighted are this room rental style of house hacking where you're gonna live in one room and rent the others. So I would say, look, you know, evaluate where you're at in your life and what type of house hacking will best fit you. My wife would never let us have a bunch of roommates. So the house hack that we're in right now is a high-end duplex. We're in the bywater district. We're, you know, less than a mile from the French quarter here in New Orleans, bars, restaurants, everything's in walking distance. You know, we got three bedrooms, two bathrooms, fenced in yard, and we got the other side of it as well. That's a perfect example if you don't want that roommate style. So first I would say like pick the style that's gonna suit where you're at. And then if that roommate style fits you, I would just add one extra criteria. It's do the normal background screening, credit screening but do some sort of personality check. You know, go stalk them on Facebook, Instagram, see what they're like when they're out, and then meet them for a coffee or meet them for a drink for happy hour versus the normal show them the room and then let's meet out for coffee and chat for an hour and see if that personality is going to be similar to yours.
2: And when you do that, is there anything you need to be careful with as far as like, I know that certain situations are only, there's only certain questions you can legally ask someone like for, if they're filling out an application or they're trying to do a job interview, do you need to be careful when you meet them outside like that? You're trying to get to know them to not ask something that makes it seem like you are practicing some type of discrimination.
0: Yeah. And I don't remember all of them, but it's basically protected classes. So if you go Google protected classes, you'll get a list of all of them, but it's like the age, religion, sex, I think marital status is on there. So Look at those, and then just don't talk about those. But you know, when you're sitting down for a coffee, it's like, oh, what do you do for fun? What type of work do you do? Oh, how long have you been there? Where'd you go to school? Did you rush when you're in school? Were you part of, you know, fraternity, sorority? You know, some folks will, oh, you're in a frat. I was in a frat. Like we're gonna get along pretty well. Versus if you weren't the person that liked to be part of a frat, and you know, you hated those folks maybe you don't have one of those folks as your roommate. So like, you know, <laughs> ask those type of questions and you'll get a good sense of like, oh, they're really late night. They like to go to live music shows. I'm the person that always likes to get up early and I like to be in bed by 10. Like those just asking about what people's interests are, their hobbies. It's a little tough right now in COVID because most folks aren't doing a lot of anything, but you know, you can get some background info on folks and, and that's a good way to do it in, by avoiding those protected classes.
2: So I'm really enjoying all this tactical information, but I did kind of want to jump a little bit back into your story where you started actually really getting into real estate after you get into the nonprofits. You had the mentor who had like 100 properties. So what did your path look like? Uh, You know, How did you start building up your portfolio? How large did it get? What felt like enough for you?
0: Yeah. So we actually, I, I started with college housing just because I was like, great, you know, I'm still in my 20s. Like, if someone punches a, a hole in the wall, that's not going to bother me. I can patch that. No big deal. And then being that I was doing aid work in places like Haiti and Indonesia and Philippines, I sort of like this idea of community development. So I ended up in doing a, affordable housing as well. And part of that was while college housing was cheap, affordable housing was even cheaper to buy. And then the bar was really, really low where you know the properties that I was buying in Sort of C class areas, rougher areas. You know, I walked in and a, a property I was in a walk through, the tenant couldn't flush their toilet. They were filling up a bucket in the tub and doing pouring the bucket in to flush the toilet. So that was the bar of like other landlords that I was competing with. And I was like, <laughs> this is a $20 toilet rebuild flapper kit, you know, at, at Lowe's and like could do it myself in half an hour. Go watch a YouTube video, go buy the $20 part at Lowe's and then change it. And that blew their mind. Like, well, it was broken and you fixed it in a day or two days. Like I've been dealing with this for three months. So that helped set the bar really, really low. And that helped sort of accelerate my path with a lot of cash flow. But that's where sort of where we started to go was college housing, affordable housing, really stayed in that until about 2016. We got up to, I think the peak was about 40 units between some single families, condos, and small multifamily. And what I ended up realizing was I didn't need tons of tons of units I thought I wanted 50 a hundred or a thousand units but it was sort of this idea of like I was building another giant business and I didn't want a business I wanted that the cash flow that financial security so started selling off stuff and just reinvesting in larger syndications and then doing a little bit more of a higher end renovations and development so like our third house hack first property we, we bought when we moved to New Orleans was this old 1920s corner store. It cost, a, I think our, our purchase price was like 270 275 but we put about a quarter million dollars into it, turning it into three higher end apartments. You know, the property that we just moved into was a, a historic home, you know, built in the 1900s, applied for historic tax credits for it. So just renovation style projects.
1: So a few things that you've mentioned in passing just throughout the episode is like small maintenance stuff. You're like, you know what? I can patch that hole. They punch a hole in the wall. I can fix that toilet. I can do this maintenance stuff. But a lot of people might not feel as comfortable as you might be, Andrew, doing this type of maintenance. I don't know if you could just give us a ballpark on like what someone should expect, but I kind of asked about this earlier, like just having like reserves. What can you expect to pay for maintenance on you know a typical house hack?
0: Yeah, so you know, I'd say a normal general handyman might charge you twenty to fifty dollars an hour to come out, and most repairs can be fixed in about an hour if it's not something major. And don't get me wrong, like early on, part of it because I had more time than I had money, I learned how to do a lot of stuff myself just because I wanted to save as much cash flow as as possible. Now, other than some custom trim work here or there, like I just like to do because it's fun, I don't do any of the work anymore. You know, we we hire it all out. Know, electrical HVAC plumbing figure you're gonna be a hundred to hundred fifty dollars for a service call. And in most cases, those small issues can get fixed in an hour or two. So, you know, figure a service call for an electrical issue is gonna run you 150, 200 bucks if it's something small. We had a unit next to ours. HVAC wasn't working. So we called the HVAC guy. The thermostat just went out. We needed a replacement thermostat. I think the bill was like 210, 215, you know, took them a little less than an hour plus parts. So easy stuff. You just want to make sure you have some of that money aside. And I think that's where a lot of folks get in trouble is they'll say, oh, this property is giving me $400 in cash flow, $600, whatever it is. They think they can spend all of that, but really you should be setting aside some of that for your maintenance that's going to come up whenever it happens to, and then some long term improvement. So The roof might be new now, but you're going to need to replace it in 20 years. So you should be setting aside a little bit of money every year. So when the roof goes out in 20 years, the money will already be sitting there. Another
2: thing that I know people will have to look out for that I saw on your website that you have experienced like 20 different evictions. If someone ends up running into this situation, what are some kind of tips and tricks that you have? And I know that the the different laws, depending on which state you're in, like some states are highly protective of tenants, some are not. So I know that could be kind of difficult, but maybe just some of the things you've learned from that many evictions.
0: Get a really strong lease and then enforce the lease. Let me preface that by, you know, the 20 plus different evictions that I've done was all in the affordable housing space. So some folks hear that and they get scared of like, oh, I never want to do a house hack or I never want to do real estate investment. Never had to evict anyone out of a house hack. I've never had to evict anyone out of my college housing or the nicer housing stuff that we've done at all unfortunately happened in the affordable housing stuff. But if you have a really strong lease and then you enforce the lease, most of the time it's someone is not paying. So then you enforce the lease based on whatever the terms are in your state that's allowed. So if it's rents due on the first, a lot of states will say you have to give them a grace period of three days or five days, whatever. And then you give them a pay or quit notice that basically says if you do not pay in This period that the state allows, you're then going to file eviction. So, like in North Carolina, it was, I think, 10 days. So, you know, if they didn't pay by the 5th, I delivered the pay or quit notice. If they hadn't paid by the 15th, then I'd go down the courthouse and we'd file. And every time we'd win, simply because the judge would say, okay, why are you here? And we'd say, well, they violated the lease. They violated, you know, part A, part D, and part E. Here's the proof you know, here's where I delivered the notices. And then the judge would turn to the tenant and say, why this? And they'd come up with all sorts of excuses and stories and, you know, uh, woe is me and this and that. And the judge would say, well, that's nice and all, but you still violated the lease that you signed and you agreed to, and they delivered the notices properly. He wins the eviction case. So that's all I simply did was just file and get really strong leases and then actually enforce it. So, you know, some folks will say like, Oh, well, I want to give them a little bit of a grace period and, and let them caught up. I don't want to be a mean, mean guy. I'd say, fine. If you want to give them a couple day grace period, still deliver the notices on time. That way, if they are just buying time and pulling your leg, you already have that clock running. But uh, the really biggest thing there is having strong leases.
2: And when you're going through that, like at the courthouse, were you just going in yourself or were you also incurring some kind of legal fees?
0: No, I only had to hire a lawyer once when someone appealed, and this is another reason not to have an LLC. So I had a bunch of properties in the LLC. I could represent myself in small claims court, but as soon as they appealed it, it went to the appellate court. I could no longer represent my LLC in appellate court. I had to hire a lawyer. So a little bit of a downside there, but yeah, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment, and I like to figure out things. Like I learn best by doing it and going through the process myself. So I did all the evictions myself. I read a little bit online and then I went and I sat in the back and got there early and watched all the other cases and watched how people acted and didn't act. And I was like, oh, he looks like a real lawyer. He's in the nice suit. How does he act? Does he say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, to the judge? How does he address them? And then I just mimicked that. And because I had those strong leases and act somewhat professional, it was a pretty overall easy process. So speaking of dealing
1: with tenants, most of the time, you're not living in the house hack forever. I know a common strategy is like the house hack hop, where you do one year in house hack, buy another house hack a year later. And so maybe you move far away from your house hack. How do you go about selecting a property manager that's suitable for your house hack?
0: Yeah, the best way, if you don't know anyone in an area, property manager is to get a referral from another real estate investor. So use bigger pockets, find some online forum, a local real estate investors association and just ask around of like who, who's the property manager that y'all use. And that's a great way to get a referral. And then what I'll do is I'll look at the property manager's fee schedule and really understand that. Do they charge an upfront fee for leasing a unit? Do they charge an annual maintenance fee? And then what percentage of the lease do they take? Do they charge a markup fee on parts and materials? Do they have an in-house maintenance folks? And that's one of the big ones that I'll look for is if they don't have anyone on staff for maintenance, you're paying a lot higher rate because they're calling out a third party where if they've got the maintenance guy on salary for 40 grand or 50 grand a year, and they're managing two, three, four, five hundred 500 units, it brings that cost down quite a bit. So I'll just ask about all those different fees. And then when possible, I like to go interview them in person and meet with them. Like, is their office organized? Is their office, you know, do they look disheveled? Because most likely If their office is a mess, paperwork's everywhere, they don't have good systems and processes, and it's going to be difficult to go with them and get information on on your property. But yeah, start with a referral from another investor if you can, and then really dig into their, their fee structure and try to see how they represent themselves and their company.
1: I guess one more thing we haven't really talked about is actually using insurance, Andrew. And I know I've heard so many things in real estate groups that I'm in. Like if it's under a certain dollar amount, don't bother going with insurance because your, you know, your monthly premiums are going to go up. But I'm sure there's instances where you really need to use insurance. I'd love if you could just talk about whether it's dollar amounts or instances where insurance is a must.
0: Yeah, so I will always try to set my deductible around 2500 or 5 grand just to prevent me from doing small stuff, but unfortunately I've had to in my 18 years or so of owning property, had to file two insurance claims and they were both from property fire, so Ooh. you know, they weren't $1000 in damage and you're debating whether or not to file a, a insurance claim. You know, they were they were starting to get up there. One of them was a horrible experience. The insurance company actually denied my claim twice and it took getting a lawyer to write a demand letter for them turning around. And it was a really challenging process where this was actually in a condo. The homeowners association changed their coverage policies and they increased their deductible from 10 grand to I think 25 grand and then 50 grand. I didn't catch that and they didn't publicize it. And then my insurance to cover that gap Wasn't big enough. And then the insurance company that I had just filed an outright denial on it. And it was a horrible, horrible process. We had some kids that were cooking in a walk, and there's a grease fire. And oddly enough, the grease fire didn't cause a lot of damage, but they tried to put it out by spraying water on it. And then (laughs) that flamed up, turned on the sprinkler system, and like the unit flooded. And it, it was a horrible mess. So there's one company I will never go with again for insurance. And then the other one was uh farm bureau and they are some of the most phenomenal insurance. You know, you have to pay a membership fee of like $25 a year, but I mean, it was a night and day difference. Had a property fire and a fourplex. Luckily it didn't spread past the one unit. Folks saw it, called the fire, came out, but that agent was just amazing. He literally, I called him up. I said, look, I'm not sure what to do here. Here's the situation. Can we start the process? He goes, hold on a minute. I'll call you right back. His assistant called and said, hey, he's on the way out there. And by the way, I'm already calling three people that we know that do remediation. We're getting quotes for them for you. You don't have to worry about it. And then it was just this night and day difference. It was still a process to go through how to meet the claims adjuster, but it was a night and day difference. And one of the big things that helped me with that is I had rent loss coverage. So the whole time that unit was offline, at the end of the claim, they added in the monthly rent. I had to send them a copy of the lease and they said, Oh great. Your unit was offline for whatever it was, two months or three months. Here's three months worth of rent checks that, that you lost rent on. So literally after my deductible, and then I got that rent loss coverage. I mean, I was only out like 500 bucks. This is the whole thing. Like I had good insurance and I was honest and upfront and I got solid coverage And other than a little bit of stress during that sort of first 48 hours, it didn't affect me at all financially.
2: Well, as someone who's lived on the other end of that, being in an apartment, renting while there was a house fire in the unit, and knowing just how important like good insurance is, I, I definitely understand where you're coming from. And I've actually, uh, my parents are members of Farm Bureau, and I actually have a college buddy who's an agent, so. Uh, can highly recommend them as well. And uh, definitely don't want to go with some random insurance company just because you're saving a few bucks. You want to find somebody Well, well who's that the- other
0: one was a big name company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to bring up their name, but let me just, uh, yeah, don't go with those cheap, no-name companies. Try to go with someone that's well-established, but like, like those membership style organizations like Farm Bureau are just, I found they're fantastic over that normal insurance company that won't be named.
2: Well, thank you, Andrew. Uh, and this has been an awesome show. We've went through so much, you know, really dialing in on the house hack, which you're an expert at. And although you're not going to name that insurance company, I'm hoping this is an opportunity for you to name the best place that folks out there can get in touch with you and find more information about you.
0: Yeah. So we got two sets of handles. You know, fi fibyrea f i b y r e i dot com is the website. We got Facebook and Instagram, and then the House Hacking Podcast we have for facebook instagram and twitter and all those good places where we we use that for the podcast where we talk about all things house hacking
1: awesome man well definitely listeners go check out the house hacking podcast you will learn a ton of stuff knowledge is power so i'm hoping that even one person andrew that we convinced that was you know on the fence before maybe now they have the knowledge they feel really excited about house hacking and they'll go out and get their first house hack so thank you again so much for spending time with us today
0: yeah awesome thanks again for having me on guys
1: and as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group
2: page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The FI Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.